A couple of sweeps, some separation, and a big-time scuffle highlight a wild and crazy weekend in Major League Baseball, plus a bold prediction on my beloved New York Mets. The U.S. Women's National Team gets bounced out of the World Cup. Was it just bad luck, or does this fall on the team itself? The Power Five in college football may be the monster two or three before it's all said and done, as Oregon and Washington move to the Big Ten with Utah and Arizona State jumping to the Big 12. Is this the beginning of the end for the sport as we know it? Anthony Davis signs the highest annual earning contract in the history of the NBA. Is it high risk, high reward? A big trade in the NHL as the Penguins make an effort for one last championship hurrah. August is in full swing and so is the latest podcast as we get this week off to a rocking start. It's all coming up, but first, this message. Jay Reels here just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the Jay Reels Podcast on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? Is happening, my good people. Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Back on the scene as I share my enthusiasm and exuberance on all that's happening in the sports landscape. As this is the J Reels podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even. As early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back, and we have a few things that are cooking on the sports stove, so I'm ready to serve it to you on a silver platter, and baseball will be front and center as always, because this time of the year, nothing else really going on as far as the other major sports are concerned. Yes, some off-the-field stuff, which we'll get to, whether it's college football in particular, a big trade in the National Hockey League, as I mentioned at the very top, as well as Anthony Davis signing that big deal, which to me is high risk, high reward. So you know that I'll roll up my sleeves and delve into that later on. But baseball had a weird weekend, and a wild one at that when we take a look at what's gone on in Major League Baseball. You had a couple of sweeps which were big when it comes to the AL wild card and even the AL Central picture because the Minnesota Twins, and who would have thought that I'd start off with the Twins, but they polished off the Arizona Diamondbacks and I think maybe for the season because the Diamondbacks, as great of a story as they were for the first three and a half months of the year, now it looks like they are lost at sea and I don't think anybody's going to come to save them. As far as the Twins go, they look like they may be primed to have some separation, primed to maybe 
get away from the AL Central, not having to flounder around or have Cleveland hang around to be a part of the AL Central mix. So the Twins, who have now won four in a row and beating the Diamondbacks, as I mentioned, have put themselves in a position where they have their biggest lead, I believe, in the entire year. And I understand I may not be saying much considering everything that we've talked about, both the AL and NL Central over the last few weeks, but more so for the AL Central because, as we know, it has been just a flat-out disaster where teams were actually under 500 at one point, leading the division. I believe the Twins, maybe before the All-Star break, that was the case. And even at 500, where the Guardians were in first place, I believe 45-45 and was their record before they started to sputter. And now you have a scenario where the Twins are currently five games over 500, and they have a four-game loss lead, four and a half in the division. And you wonder whether or not this is going to be their time to, I'm not going to say take off, but maybe they could at least get off the runway and start for clearer skies as opposed to some turbulence and them trying to at least navigate their way through this division to where they can at least be comfortable getting deeper into the month and into September. And not to say that they'd have their feet up by any stretch, but with the way the Guardians have played and we saw what happened with them over the weekend, not only them losing two out of three to the White Sox and the White Sox, they have their own issues, which I'll get to in a second. But then you had the big brawl there Saturday night between Jose Ramirez and Tim Anderson. And funny enough how the night before where the controversial call at second base where Tim Anderson put the tag on, I forgot the player, who slid into second and actually pushed his arm off of the bag to where they replayed it and they called him out. Manager Terry Francona came out of the dugout, furious, incensed that the call was overturned. You could definitely see that Anderson pushed the runner off the bag, therefore getting the out. And then the next night, you had a scenario where Jose Ramirez hit a double in the gap. And as he slid into second base, head first, Anderson applied the tag. And I guess the tag was a little bit too long, or he tried to pull the same stunt he did the night before. Ramirez jumped up, got in his face, pointed his finger at Anderson, and then Anderson said, hey, I want to fight. Therefore, Ramirez and Anderson dropped his glove. It almost looked like a hockey bout where the gloves were dropped, and then you had a square off there with Anderson showing his southpaw style. And then next thing you know, after a couple of swings and misses, Ramirez connected with a right hook, sending Anderson to the turf. And you know both of those players are going to be suspended. The managers were ejected. It spilled almost into the... Guardian dugout, or really the White Sox dugout, because the Guardians, I believe, are on the third base side. So that was an ugly and wild scene there out in Progressive Field, or whatever they call that field out in Cleveland. But the Guardians lost the back two of the three-game set against the White Sox. And the White Sox, who would have thought that, of all people, a guy named Keenan Middleton, who was traded to the Yankees right at the deadline there on Tuesday who came out and said that the culture in Chicago is just awful. And I'm paraphrasing there, but pretty much what he said in his little, I'm not going to say press conference, because he is a middle reliever, he's not one of the top guys in the sport, but when approached by the press and trying to get a feel for what happened there out in the south side of Chicago, he said that players are pretty much doing their own thing, that there is... No management, there is no accountability when it comes to, and again, Pedro Grafal, who is the manager of the team, who has certainly not done the job here as an underwhelming and underachieving White Sox team, who many people thought they could be in the race for an AL Central 
title there at the beginning of the year and I picked them as an over last year and they went belly up as you know even under Tony La Russa when that was the last year of his deal and the last year of him being a White Sox manager but for Middleton to come out and blast the manager and pretty much everything that happens there in the locker room where everybody's policing each other and there's no structure when it comes to the manager having an idea or a feel for what goes on with his team and as we've seen throughout the course of this year maybe not in the last two days because the White Sox did win those two games but everybody knows that the White Sox have certainly been bad here over the last two years and for the talent that they have especially with their starting lineup and I get it they have Dylan Cease and they traded away Lucas Giolito two good starters there but their lineup with Eloy Jimenez and Yohan Moncada, Anderson, who's also a good player, they've had guys on the team that can produce and have shown that they are major league worthy. But for whatever the reason, it has not amounted to any success there for the White Sox over the last two years. And it's shown, and by Middleton coming out against his former team, manager, etc., certainly gives you a better idea that the White Sox, they may need a house cleaning when it's all said and done. But that was a big sweep. And then the other sweep over the weekend, which was a bit of a surprise, was the Blue Jays beating the Red Sox in Fenway. And the Red Sox have had these weird stretches this year to the point where just when you think that they're going to be lost and that they're not going to find their footing, they come away with a nice streak, whether it's a 14 out of 20 or put themselves in a position where, hey, look at the Red Sox. They were in last place, which they currently are now. But they're a half game behind the Yankees as the Yankees are 58-54, Red Sox 57-54. But for a Red Sox team that for whatever the reason they've been Jekyll and Hyde and this was a weekend that certainly showed where they could have put themselves in a position where they could have gotten a little bit closer there as far as the wild card goes but they take a few big steps back and the Blue Jays look like they're going to be serious here to play this sucker out until the very end and make it into the postseason and of course we'll go over the Wild card scenarios in a minute. But the Blue Jays, and they've also had their moments too where they've been very up but also very down. And it looks like now they're trying to trend upward here. It's just a three-game winning streak. It's nothing to get crazy about. But knowing that the Red Sox were unable to get out of Fenway with at least one win against their division foes, does it speak a lot? Does it speak as to the Red Sox maybe starting to slip a little bit or maybe fall out of this AL wild card picture? I wouldn't say so just yet, but this was maybe not a telling sign, but it certainly is a sign to wonder whether or not the Red Sox, even though with guys like Trevor Story and Chris Sale coming back into the mix at some point, to me, this is maybe a little bit of a sign to wonder whether or not the Red Sox are going to be in this for the long haul. So that's something to keep in mind there. And keeping it in the division, you had the Orioles continue to just wreak havoc amongst the American League as well as the National League, because they pounded on the Mets over the weekend, which is no surprise. But they certainly keep themselves four games and three games in the standings over the Tampa Bay Rays, who won two out of three over the weekend against Detroit. And then the Yankees, who had a big week this past week, they lost two out of three to the Rays. And just when they had an opportunity, when you thought that they would go ahead and maybe take three out of four against the Astros, they end up splitting. And this is the one thing about the Yankees that you have to be concerned about, Not only just Carlos Rodon, who has just been awful and now had to leave yesterday's game with a tight hamstring. So who knows if he's going to be done for the year considering how he's been brittle ever since he signed that contract back, what was it, last November or December. But now you also have a scenario where the Yankees, who have played a ton of home games 
and now go on their longest road trip of the year, a nine-gamer where they go to Chicago to play the White Sox before going to Miami and then Atlanta. Think about this. If you're a Yankee fan, knowing that your starting rotation, other than Garrett Cole, and I understand Nestor Cortez came back and pitched well. He just gave up a home run the other day to Jose Altuve, but pitched pretty well in his return. But knowing that Luis Severino is a lost cause, and I wouldn't re-sign him if I'm Brian Cashman, I just talked about the aforementioned Rodon. And now you have a scenario where in the final 50 games of the Yankee season, 32 of them are going to be on the road. And not to try to say that the Yankees are going to just fold like cheap suits or they're not going to perform well. Now their road record is 23-26, and so it's certainly nothing to write home about. But knowing that the Yankees, on the outside looking in as we currently speak, and not necessarily a tough road trip, although the White Sox, as I mentioned, with a modest two-game winning streak. Let's see if they could put some pressure. And they actually beat the Yankees earlier this year by winning two out of three at the stadium. And then Miami, who is sputtering just like the Arizona Diamondbacks in the National League, but then they have to go to Atlanta after that. We know Atlanta is the best record and arguably is the best team in baseball. But this is going to be a daunting task for a Bomber team that their rotation is in tatters. They have not been able to hit. Judge has been in and out of the lineup ever since he's been back. And now you have to wonder whether or not the road warrior mentality of Yankee teams in the past could somehow seep their way into this team to make a playoff push and make it in as one of the six teams or at least four through six when it comes to the wild card. So that's what you have there with the Yankees and pretty much the American League on a whole. But then you also have the Texas Rangers, another sweep who swept the Miami Marlins. As I mentioned, they look like they could be on the outs before you know it. But the Rangers... And even with Max Scherzer, who pitched there on Tuesday, or excuse me, on Thursday, who gave up three runs early, but the Rangers didn't win his start. And Texas, who now has a three-game in the loss, but two-and-a-half-game lead over the Houston Astros. And remember, that was a half-game going into the series there against the Yankees on Thursday. So the Rangers got a little bit of separation there as they won six in a row. But we all know that that could change with the flick of a switch. But the Rangers... We would think with that Scherzer trade, bringing in that big-time starter that they need, obviously no Jacob DeGrom there, and we also know that they have Jordan Montgomery there that they also brought in from St. Louis. They're going to be fine. They're going to make it to the postseason, but whether or not they get a first-round bye, which is going to be critical because I'm sure the last thing that they would want is to play in a wild-card round. They won't have their pitching set up properly the way they would if they had four or five days off. So that's something just to keep in mind here as we get through the dog days and down through the final stretch of this baseball season. And then as far as the National League goes, I never thought I would say this, but look out for the Chicago Cubs. The team has just played lights out here over the last, I would say, maybe six weeks. And here they are tied with the Reds, although they are percentage points ahead of them with a 58-54 record. And the Reds, who also have hit the skids here, losers of six in a row. And who would have thought that after that road trip, when they went to Milwaukee, where they lost two out of three, but then they beat the Dodgers and did well, winning two out of three there, but then they lost three out of four to the Cubs. And that was huge because look at all the ground that they've made up. And since then, the Reds have just been out of control to the point where, like I said, that six-game losing streak over the weekend, you thought that maybe they would bounce back against a national team in their building, but the Nationals swept them. And now you have a scenario where the Cubs have just overtaken them in the division. Granted, I understand percentage points, and we know that the NL Central, similar to the AL Central, is very 
unpredictable and who knows who's going to come out on top. But the Charging Cubs are a team that we're going to have to look out for because they played well here and give it up for what they've done here throughout the course, like I mentioned, over the last month to six weeks. And with the one game just apart in the division in the loss, but a game and a half behind the Brewers, who would have thought that the Cubs would be a part of this playoff picture knowing that they have risen from the dead and now put themselves as a big-time player here in the National League? What does this mean overall if they make it into the postseason? Obviously, it's a crapshoot. We don't know. Baseball, as we know, is finicky. But at the same time, you have to give it up for what the Cubs have done considering that they have tried to piecemeal this all together when you look back last offseason, bringing in guys like Cody Bellinger, even Trey Mancini, who I believe was released. But you've had guys that have really bought in and pitched into what David Ross, the manager, has put out there. Remember, he was part of that 2016 championship team, so he knows his way around locker rooms and players and has managed the hell out of this team. But let's see if this team can continue to move forward or will they run out of gas based on all the games that they have to make up here between May, June, and the early part of July. Then you have the Phillies who have played well. Now the Phillies are a team that aren't going to catch the Braves for the division. But now you wonder whether or not the Phillies are going to start to put it in overdrive to be that team to defend their National League flag and now see if they can also get themselves primed and ready for October yet again. So that's another team we have to look out for. The National League, though, is rather quiet or is now settling into what we expect it to be when we take a look at the wildcard races in both the AL and NL. But I'll start with the NL in particular because that was a logjam, as we know, for the last few weeks. But with the Diamondbacks falling off and the Reds starting to slip, although they're still within distance, and the Marlins not playing well, they are still clumped together as teams that can be in the mix here for a wildcard berth. Now you have the Giants who have also played well, although they lost their last two here over the weekend. And the Giants, they are within striking distance of the Dodgers. They're just four games behind them, but they lost both games to the Athletics over the weekend. So that certainly didn't bode well. Maybe there was a little bit of a letdown, thinking that they could just go across the bay and beat up on the Athletics. That was not the case. But the Giants not only are in prime position for a wild card spot as they are currently two games, let me see that if I'm reading that right, three games ahead of the Cubs and Reds who are currently tied, percentage points separated them for that last playoff spot as far as the wild card goes. But you have the Phillies that are sandwiched in between, identical records with the Giants. So then you have the Marlins after that. So to go in order, Giants, Phillies, Cubs, Reds, but again, percentage points are separating both of those teams. In fact, both of those teams actually have the same percentage points. So the Cubs would probably go in based on the less amount of losses, although the Reds are 59 and 55, Cubs 58, 54. But then you have the Marlins just a half game back, and it certainly helps that the Reds have gone into a funk here if you're a Marlins fan, but they've also lost four in a row. Diamondbacks, they're still in it, just a game and a half back, two in the loss. And then you have the Padres who have lost two out of three to the Dodgers over the weekend and they conclude their four-game series this afternoon in San Diego. So let's see if they can at least even that out to keep themselves in pace for a wild card out in the National League because you can forget about the division. But they are currently three back behind the Cubs and Reds and that's what you have there with the Mets floating way back seven games and obviously 
they're an afterthought when it comes to the wild card race. But I do have a prediction that I'm going to make as I conclude this latter half of the American League when it comes to the wild card where you have the Rays, Astros. Now the Rays have a three game lead, three and a half over the Astros as the fourth seed in the wild card race. Astros, then Blue Jays based on their sweep over the weekend of the Red Sox who have a two and a half game lead over the Mariners and they played well here as they've won five in a row. So now the Mariners look to catapult themselves into this race where the Yankees have slipped back. They are now five and excuse me, four in the loss, four and a half back of the Blue Jays for that final wild card spot. And then you have the Red Sox who are five back, and then the Angels, who now they've really have plummeted to where they've lost six in a row. And you wonder whether or not you're going to hear from the Angels here the rest of this year. And you can forget about the Guardians and every other team below them. But the Angels are another team that a lot of people paid attention to with a lot of their deals made right before the trade deadline. Now, were they earth-shattering? Were they moving the needle? No, but for the Angels and trying to keep Shohei Otani, those were moves that were probably going to solidify whether their rotation for a guy like Lucas Giolito or guys that they brought into the lineup. But now you have to wonder whether or not the Angels are now about to look for a life raft or some help to get themselves back in this wildcard race because... Seven games back, and we know it's very competitive with those aforementioned teams, Yankees, Mariners, etc., even the Red Sox. So who knows if they're going to be heard from at any point throughout the rest of this year. And then as far as the Mets, now they've had an embarrassing week. We've talked about the trades that were made. Just listen to the last couple of podcasts, whether it's Max Scherzer, who I thought needed to go, and Verlander, who I was shocked that they let him go or they traded him. And then now you have a scenario that since those trades, the Mets, losers of six in a row, getting embarrassed in Kansas City, swept by the Royals, and then no shock getting swept by the Baltimore Orioles here. Now the one saving grace for the Mets is that they have a ton of home games. Based on what I mentioned with the Yankees, of course playing in the same town, And ironically, the Yankees are in Chicago to play the White Sox while the Cubs come to New York to play the Mets. And everything that I mentioned about the Cubs, who knows if they're going to snap this six-game losing streak against a hot Cub team. But be that as it may, they have a ton of home games with the Yankees going on the road here. And let's see, as far as any respectability goes, whether they could snap out of it. And think about this. With their current record, if they wanted to match their 101-61 record of last year, they would have to run the table. So they have to win 51 in a row, which we obviously know is not going to happen. But the one bold prediction I want to make about this Met team, and really about the manager, I thought about this the other day, and I said to myself, I would not be surprised that at the end of the year, Buck Showalter goes to Steve Cohen and says, I don't know if I want to be here for this transitional period or for 2025 if this team is going to be ready to compete for a World Series. Because the reason why Buck Showalter was brought here to begin with was to take the Mets to the Holy Grail. Was to take them to a World Series and finally win for the first time in 37. Count them, it will be 37 after this year, since 1986. And I don't know what's in Buck Showalter's heart. I'm sure there's a part of him that wants to stick this out. But what is he, 66, 67, or maybe even 68 years of age? And I don't know if he wants to stay... For a turnaround. This isn't the mid-90s Yankee teams that he was able to turn around before he got let go after 95 unfairly by George Steinbrenner. But we know what happened after that. 
And then for the Diamondbacks, as they were brought into the MLB consciousness back in 1998, and a year after, went to the postseason, by the way, lost to the Mets, if you recall, Todd Pratt, i.e. that walk-off home run that he had in game number four. But for Showalter, who has brought two teams to the cusp of titles where other managers have come in, this was his time to now be the opposite to where he could come in and win that World Series for a team that was ready-made to get there and finally maybe even raise that trophy above their heads. Well, now that next year, although they're going to compete and they're going to make whatever moves that they could possibly make, but it doesn't necessarily mean or guarantee that they're going to make it to a World Series, let alone a postseason. And if 2025 is going to be the prospective goal as to this team maybe making some hay, not only in the National League, but Major League Baseball overall, who knows if Buck Showalter wants to stay around to be a part of that. So my prediction is going to be, and it's going to be mutual. So I don't think this is a scenario where Steve Cohen's going to go to Buck and say, hey, we're going to have to let you go. That would be silly and stupid because I'm sure that the writing is on the wall for Showalter to say, maybe I should exit and he has every right to do that because one more time he came here for a singular reason and purpose is to win a world series and this team right now is it's constituted over the next two years and we have to see what's going to happen this offseason I understand that but I would not be surprised if Showalter and Steve Cohen's a meeting of the minds to say maybe it's time for somebody else to come in to at least guide this ship to some success over the next two years and maybe a world series will come about in the middle or maybe even the latter part of this decade. So that's what I'm going to throw out here on August 7th that Buck Showalter, and this isn't anything that I know behind the scenes, inside information, none of that. This is just my gut telling me and rightfully so. Why would Showalter stick around if he knows that this team isn't going to be World Series made by the time 2024 spring training comes around or even 25? So just keep that in mind, people, and let's see if that actually comes to fruition here as we get deeper and longer into this baseball season, as woeful as the Mets season has been, as they start off a homestand, like I mentioned, against the Chicago Cubs. All right, now I'm going to turn my attention as I put the helmet and shoulder pads on for both the NFL and college football. This will be a two-for-one. The NFL, I did not watch the Hall of Fame game. Sorry, I was just not going to bear witness to any lackluster, and quite frankly, boring play. And I didn't watch the Hall of Fame ceremonies over the weekend. I read that DeMarcus Ware, his was very emotional and tearful. I didn't get to watch any of it. I just had no interest, people. There wasn't a guy that was going into the hall this year that I said, ah, I got to watch his speech. Oh, I would like to see how he does here as he's enshrined in Canton. So I bypassed all that. And now we can look ahead to the full slate of the Exhibition season, will I be watching? Will I be paying attention? Yes. Watching, no. As the schedule will be raised this Thursday. And of course, the season will start four weeks from this coming Thursday. So the NFL fan, I'm sure, is jumping up and down and just salivating at the thought of getting their fantasy teams together and their knockout pools and what's going to take place there week one as we have Lions and Chiefs. And I talked about that on Thursday's podcast where I do not like the game at all. But now as I turn my attention to college football, and they've been in the news quite a bit here over the last few days, and you have to wonder whether or not this sport is going to implode. And what I mean by that is college football, 
It has become huge over the last few years. And for those who are new to the podcast, I've never really been a big college football fan growing up because when you're in the Northeast and with all the other major sports that take place here, there isn't really a college football team that you could put your arms around to say, ah, this is the team that I'm going to follow. It's not as if you have a team that has been very successful in this region. Nobody's going to look at Syracuse or Connecticut or Rutgers or any of the other teams, not a college football team out in Long Island, at least Division I. So there really isn't a team that I could look at as a boy to just rally around to say, aha, this is the team I'm going to root for. I didn't root for Notre Dame back in the day. I didn't root for Michigan or any of the big-time schools. So therefore, when I got even into my 30s, I really got focused in on college football to the point where, yes, can I tell you from A to Z, everything about all the teams and some of the rising stars or sleepers on some of the other teams and conferences that we're not going to follow? Absolutely not. But of course, my finger's on the pulse as to what's going on with the sport and what's been transpiring here over the last couple of years with the playoff that will take place starting next year, the 12-teamer, and now over the last two years with these teams just jumping ship from one conference to the next. And what we've seen here between Oregon and Washington, as well as Utah and Arizona, going from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten, respectively, as well as the Big 12, it just makes you think that college football is going to swallow itself because now you're going to have a scenario where the Power Five of the SEC, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, and Pac-12 are probably going to turn into at least a Monster 2, if not Monster 3. Because the ACC, let's face it, now for basketball, we understand that they are a powerhouse. When you're looking at Duke, North Carolina, all right, even Syracuse for that matter, NC State, as we know in college basketball, has a history, Wake Forest, etc. But as far as the college scene, Clemson is the only team that is worthy of any type of success. Now, I understand North Carolina also has a very good program, but it's not as if they are one of the powerhouses when it comes to college football. Now, when we take a look at what's gone on here, with Oregon and Washington jumping to the Big Ten, and they'll start next year, And we've seen this happen with USC and UCLA also going to the Big Ten. And the year prior to that with Oklahoma and Texas going to the SEC. Now you have both Utah and Arizona State finding their way via invite to the Big 12. And college football with some of these schools and some of these conferences, you might as well just blow it up right now. Because the Pac-12, forget about it. There's going to be no such thing. And the Big 12, they've gotten a little bit of a push here with these teams. And we know the Big 10 is the Big 10. So with UCLA and USC, now you want to combine Oregon and Washington. That's going to be a powerhouse bigger than we ever could have imagined, especially from the Big 10 where you already have Michigan and Ohio State and Penn State, Michigan State, Wisconsin going down the line. And now you're going to have a scenario, especially when you get to the playoff where you're going to have these teams going to fight it out amongst the 5 through 12 because you figure that the top four are going to have buys. But what's going to make the playoff, I would think, very predictable is that the team that is the Cinderella, the a la TCUs of the world, or even Cincinnati the year before, if you recall, those teams aren't even going to have a sniff 
when it comes to making it to a national semifinal or even a championship. Because now with the teams traversing conferences and stacking themselves with just big-time teams, we talked about the teams in the Big Ten. The Big 12, I get it, may not be as sexy, may not be as big because you've had Oklahoma and Texas leave. So I don't think the Big 12 could be that monster three that we would expect because you know the SEC is by far the best conference in the nation. And then you're going to have the Big 10 next. Big 12 is trying to see what they could do to save some face by bringing in a couple of these teams. But when it's all said and done, a lot of these teams, yes, they're going to be happy to get a bowl bid and happy to be part of the playoff come next year. But they're not going to have a snowball chance in hell to even advance to get to a point where they could even make it to a semifinal scenario on New Year's Eve. (laughs) Dare I even say a national championship. Because when you think about it, look at last year, for example. Alabama was likely your five seed considering they lost twice and we know Alabama is Alabama. And whomever the 12 seed is going to be last year and you can't got to break it down and really think about it. But for argument's sake, you're going to have that type of team be on the outside of the top four. Or even a team like USC who had a very big year. You mean to tell me that a Cinderella is going to have any shot to beat that team to advance to a quarterfinal? Not going to happen. It's going to be a situation where, yes, those teams are going to be happy to be there. That 5 through 12 or to be that bottom rung of the bracket. But when they realize that they're going to face in all likelihood, a powerhouse team, a top school in the nation, that game might as well have a 40-point spread going into it and knowing that they have literally no shot to win that game. Now, people could argue, well, Jay Reels, look at TCU last year that they beat Michigan in the semifinal. Well, if you watch that game again, Michigan beat themselves so many different ways, and I get it, TCU, they did earn it, Max Duggan played a great game. He was gutty, gritty, the whole team overall. But their defense was putrid. They gave up big-time runs. They had stops at the goal line where they just were awful in so many ways, shapes, and forms in that game that I'm sure Jim Harbaugh still can't sleep to this day knowing that his team blew that game so many ways to Sunday. But I hate to say it, people. Is this good for college football? It's not. People may say it's going to be, people may think it's going to be, but as we all know, it is going to be as top-heavy as it always has been when you think about it because the usual suspects are there every January or December 31st when it comes to the national semifinals, whether it's Ohio State, whether it's Georgia, whether it's Alabama, whether it's Michigan, all right, TCU and Cincinnati, they were the anomalies in this case, but it's usually the same teams overall, Clemson as we've seen over the years. Why is that going to be any different with all these teams just trying to get out of these conferences to join these bigger conferences and maybe have that success or maybe not that at the end of the day, you're going to see the same teams in the final four and in the, even in the championship setting that it's just going to be so predictable that the sport is, like I said, going to eat itself up and spit itself out. Those teams that think they may have a shot are not going to have a shot. And it's very sad because that would be equivalent to, let's say, if the NFL were to realign or teams said, you know what, the hell with it. 
But let's just say, for argument's sake, you wanted to have the Bengals to say, hey, I think we have a better shot in the NFC. Let's see if we could go there. Or, hey, let's uh, have the Baltimore Ravens do the same thing. And let's see if we could be part of the NFC North because we could probably win a division considering that the NFC North right now, maybe 10 games, wins that division. But we understand that even if those teams were to jump ship, or even Jacksonville for that matter, let's move to the AFC South, or excuse me, the NFC South because they are in the AFC South. Because they'll have a good shot to win a division because the NFC South is going to be weak. But by doing that, they're going to put themselves in a scenario where they may win and may go far in the NFC, but chances are they're going to get smoked by Buffalo, they're going to get smoked by Kansas City, potentially get smoked by, let's say, if the Bengals didn't move, by them, the Chargers, etc. Let's say the Chargers want to move to the NFC West because they have a good shot to win that division, although the Niners you would expect to be competitive, but you never know. But let's say if there was going to be a team that would be able to jump ship because they have a better shot to get to the Super Bowl than the AFC, but chances are they're probably going to end up losing either A, before they get there, but even more so, all right, we made it to the Super Bowl or go beyond, but here it is. Uh Uh-oh, wait a second. We're going up against the Niners. We could lose there. And even if we get to a Super Bowl, we're going to get smoked by Patrick Mahomes, who's going for back-to-back and his third Super Bowl overall. Or a hungry Buffalo Bill team that has faltered over the last few years, but now that they've made it there, they look like they're primed and ready to win a Super Bowl. It's the same thing in college football. And I don't know where the excitement, I don't know if there's going to be enough hoopla. And yes, it's going to be thrilling and exciting in the regular season, but once you get to late November into conference championship weekend, etc., especially when you get to next year, I understand it's the last year where you're going to have the 14 playoff, but I don't know. The sport as we know it is not going to be anything close to what it once was. It is just going to be so top-heavy and I think it's going to be so predictable that year in, year out, these same schools that we've seen since the start of the playoff, other than a year or two, it's just going to have the same movie but just with a different ending. So that same movie may be Alabama versus Georgia, Clemson versus Alabama, Georgia versus, let's say, Michigan, And before you know it, we're going to have the same repeat champions year after year after year after year. And the SEC wins all these titles as it is, dating back to Nick Saban, LSU, and obviously all the success he's had there at Tuscaloosa, and now recently here with Kirby Smart in Georgia. Why would that change? All right, yeah, you may have a winner coming out of the Big Ten now, or who knows, if you get lucky, Big 12, which... It's going to be unlikely considering that Oklahoma and Texas are now going to be part of the SEC as of next year. Uh, To me, it's just a flat-out mess. And I'll be on top of it, and you know that I'm going to follow this throughout late August into the early part of December and then obviously through the bowl season and into the semifinal and championship. But that college football preview that will be, I guess, three weeks from this coming Thursday... There may not be much to dive into because it's going to be the same old song that we've listened to year after year after year after year. So college football fans, you have been warned. Now I'm going to get into the Women's World Cup. Just to spend a few minutes on this, and I understand this may have come as a big surprise to people who either watched and woke up early enough to witness the USA women's team lose to Sweden in penalty kicks. And for Megan Rapino, who had that missed penalty kick as she goes off into retirement, as she mentioned in her post-match 
conference. I know that's something that's not going to sit well with her from now until the end of time. But was this a situation with the women's team? And mind you, I did not follow this closely. I talked about this on the podcast Thursday. If you've listened to it, now you're going to understand where I'm coming from. If you haven't, then people are going to say, well, Jay Reels, how dare you even talk about something that you hadn't watched? Of course, I follow. This is what I do, people. It is sports. And even if it's soccer, hockey, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be on top of it because whether or not this team... Did they not have it all together? Was there something off about this team going into this World Cup? Was it traveling halfway around the globe to New Zealand to play in this tournament? I don't know. Were they too big for their britches thinking that they were going to go ahead and win a third straight World Cup? Maybe. And as it was, maybe that loss to Portugal where, or it was a tie, excuse me, but psychologically may have been a loss because... They were this close, what was it, in the 91st minute where one of the Portugal players hit the crossbar, and if that was the case, that would have been it for the U.S. And then afterwards, there were some unfavorable comments by a couple of the players afterwards where I believe they were taking selfies with some people in the crowd, and maybe Carly Lloyd, I think, was one that said that, hey, we shouldn't be celebrating here, this is something that's going to have to sit with us for a couple of days before our next match, etc. And as it was, as we saw there yesterday... They were not victorious. They were just ousted by the Swedish team who were ranked third in the world. And the U.S. not going to be able to get another World Cup under their belt. And the only thing I could say, people, is maybe that their focus just wasn't there. Maybe they thought that all they had to do was lace up their cleats to show up and that they were going to win. We understand how dominant they've been. We understand that they've just pretty much taken over Soccer in this country, as far as the team is concerned, because the U.S. men's, as we know, they're not going to be on the same caliber as some of the other countries in the world when it comes to a World Cup scenario. And I get it. You could even flip that on the women's side, where the same could be said that throughout the women's landscape, that there isn't a dominant team or there isn't enough players that could match up with the women's team here in the U.S. Understood. But I really can't say whether or not they were too big for their britches or whether there was just something off with this team going into this tournament. But I will say that, is it a shame? I'm not going to blast this team. I understand there may be some pundits to say, oh, what a shame, what a disgrace. How could they have not been focused on and so forth? It happens to the best of these teams. We've seen so many dominant teams lose in big spots in other sports over time. That does it come as a shock, as a surprise? It absolutely does. But we're not in the locker rooms. We're not on those bus rides. We're not in the hotel rooms. We're not on those flights to know whether or not that this team was not laser focused and sharp to play these games. And maybe they checked out and just didn't want to be at that side of the world. I understand at the very beginning of it, there was that incident where I believe a gunman open fire on some people not to say that that was going to affect the team but who knows yeah you just don't know with how this team whether they didn't have the focus this time around whether they weren't inspired who knows but the only thing I will say is that they fell way short because if they lost in a semifinal or a final maybe you could say ah eh, all right we understand but knowing that they lost here maybe you could point the finger to say They should have done better. But again, 
I'm not on top of this. I didn't watch these games. I don't know if there was a lack of effort. Any of that. But it does come into question whether or not this team was really prepared because they did not make it all the way to a final, even a semifinal for that matter. So therefore, you could certainly question that. And that's all I could say. I understand that maybe an eh or blah answer, but one more time. They fell short? Absolutely. And they have to hold themselves accountable for that or maybe even the coach for that matter. I don't know. Maybe the coach didn't have him prepared. Maybe it was all on him. But as it is, they exit stage right and the Women's World Cup continues and let's see how that all shakes down here over the course of the next week or so. Which I believe will probably conclude sometime if not next Sunday. I couldn't even tell you. That just goes to show how much, as I mentioned on Thursday, I'm invested in the Women's World Cup. Two other quickies before I bounce here. I want to start off NBA with Anthony Davis. He signed a three-year extension the other day, $186 million. So if you do the math, that's $62 million a year, which adds up to the highest annual salary in the history of the NBA. Now, people are going to say, wait a minute, Jay Reels, what happened with Jalen Brown when he signed that contract? Five years, $304 million. Well, remember... That's not going to kick in until next year where I believe it starts at $57 million and goes as high as $69 million. So it increases over the years. So obviously it's not going to start on the average at $60 million, which still would fall short of what Anthony Davis is going to make. But here's the thing. I understand why the Lakers had to resign him. One last run with LeBron, you would think. Because I believe LeBron has a one and one He has this year upcoming and has an option for the following. Which at that point, he could go to any team he wants. And I'm sure he'll follow Bronny if he does get drafted. Barring his health. Coming off of that cardiac arrest that he suffered about 10 days ago or so. But for Davis to be part of the mix. And if you're Rob Palenka, you understand why you had to sign him. But it definitely comes at a high risk, high reward factor. Because... At 30 years of age, we know that that body is more like 35, 36 with all the leg injuries that he's suffered over the years. And yes, we understand that when he is healthy, he is arguably a top five player, easily a top seven or eight player in the sport. But the thing is, his health has certainly declined over the years and it has betrayed him to the point where we get it. He was going to get paid handsomely and they had to do it. I understand. Because you couldn't shortchange him. You couldn't say, hey, can we give you a team-friendly deal or a friendly discount? He's going to balk at that and look at that as disrespect to the point where once LeBron leaves, then I want to get the exits to be part of a team that will be ready for a championship run. But as we know, after next year, the CBA is a lot different to where, yes, you could have those two players on your team, but then you're going to have to supplement the rest of your team with $1 million contracts. That's just the way it's going to be because that's, the super team and that route is going to be gone as far as having those three guys, the threesome, the big three is going to be a thing of the past as we get deeper into this decade. But as far as Davis goes, it certainly is a dice roll. I'll say that. And we don't know how this is going to come about here in LA. If you could guarantee that Davis plays 70 to 75 games, and is going to be healthy going into April, May, and June, then the Lakers have as good a shot as anyone. Think about it. They went to a conference final last year, albeit swept to the eventual NBA champs, but 
If Davis is healthy, the Lakers have a shot. And if LeBron, we understand he's going to be 39 come December, and he's not going to be at the peak of his powers, a la his Miami Heat days or his days after that in Cleveland. But we would think that he's going to be an effective player. He's going to average somewhere between 20 to 25 points a game. He's going to have his eight rebounds and eight assists. We don't think that he's just going to all of a sudden fall apart right in front of our very eyes. So, again, a big-time crapshoot here by the Lakers just banking and hoping that Davis stays healthy here. Because if he doesn't, the contract is going to look awful. And that's all there is to it. So we shall see what is going to happen there with Davis, the Lakers, as they would only hope to be close to the top or near the top of the Western Conference so they could have themselves a better shot at getting to a title as opposed to making it in as a playing tournament scenario and then having to go that route and make it to a conference final the way they did last year, although they beat up on the lesser teams being the Minnesota Timberwolves. And yes, I understand they beat the Grizzlies, but they were imploding right in front of our very eyes. And yes, they did beat Golden State, but coming off of a championship run the year before. And sometimes the stars have to be aligned. But you would think that with those stars being aligned, and Davis, I'm sure you're going to see a lot of this load management when it comes to AD. But we're going to have to grin and bear it because that's how the NBA has been over these years. And you know Davis is probably not going to play a lot of back-to-backs. And if he's 100% healthy, I'm sure he will. But obviously, that's not going to be until October until we get the season jump-started at that time. And then lastly, at a big trade in the National Hockey League over the weekend where the Pittsburgh Penguins added... Defending Norris Trophy and three-time Norris Trophy winner Eric Carlson to the Penguins in a three-way deal with the San Jose Sharks where he came from and also the Montreal Canadiens who was a part of that. Where Carlson is going to add some big-time offense and a big-time plus to a power play that can be lethal based on the current players on the roster, i.e. Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, of course we know about Chris Letang, but Carlson who is 33 years of age... So he's not a spring chicken, but he's a guy that scored 100 points as a defenseman last year en route to winning that Norris Trophy. Was the first time in over three decades that a defenseman has notched 100 points in a season. Brian Leach was the last person to do that back in 91-92. And that was the year that the Rangers won the President's Trophy and got ousted by the Penguins, the aforementioned, during that playoff year. But for the Penguins to add Carlson, that is a huge plus. A guy that's going to bring a facelift to the power play as well as to the team overall. And the Penguins, we've talked about this year in and year out, how the aging veterans and their championship DNA, which is, I think, already out. And I understand you can't question that considering the amount of hardware that the aforementioned Crosby, Malkin, Latang, etc. But who's your goaltender when it's all said and done? Can you really trust Tristan Jarry to be the guy that's going to take him to a Stanley Cup and win it for one last go around or one last hurrah for these champions that they are? I can't see that. And I don't necessarily think that because you bring in Carlson that yes, can they be a factor? Absolutely. But remember, this Penguin team didn't even make it to the postseason last year. They had a shot to, but they lost to the Blackhawks at home in the next-to-last game of the season, which propelled the Islanders to win in their final game against Montreal to where they made it into the playoffs. So to think 
that the Penguins, although have a significant upgrade onto their team and their roster, and a guy that could probably push them into the playoffs, but does this guarantee that, all right, this collection of players and their medal, their pedigree, etc., is going to automatically put them at the top of the Eastern Conference or be a Stanley Cup contending team when it's all said and done? I don't think so. Maybe that's just me. Maybe somebody else could combat that or debate that, but I don't see this Penguin team being a threat in an Eastern Conference because A, they need a goalie. B, they're up there in age. I don't care how many Stanley Cups they've won. And yes, you can't discount that. You can't just throw away all that in the rubbish. You have to look at that and say, that's something that they could bank on or rally around to know that if they want to get through a series or take advantage of a young up-and-coming team that does not have the experience or know their way around a winning attitude or winning hockey or even winning a series when they absolutely have to, all right, I'll give you that. But that doesn't, again, it's not going to translate to them going to a conference final or making it into the Stanley Cup round to think that they could automatically win another title based on what they've done. Think about it. Back in the mid-20-teens when they won back-to-back in 16 and 17 and then going back to 2009 when they beat the Red Wings that year in the second year of them going back-to-back when they lost to the Detroit Red Wings the year before. So I don't think that's going to be the case here, although significant. And one that going into the regular season, all right, Carlson, I know he's going to be a huge boost. But is it automatic? Are the Penguins a team to beat or a team to be reckoned with come the start of the season in the early part of October? I would say no. And then the Capitals also signed Tom Wilson to a seven-year deal. He is the tough guy on that team. And at the age of 30, he's got to count his lucky stars that he got a seven-year deal. And we understand that he's a blood and guts guy, a glue guy on that team, a guy that's going to bring a lot of spunk, a lot of attitude, physicality, I get that. And I don't want to say he's a throwback because I don't see him in that light, but for Wilson to now be a part of the Capitals here for the next seven years with the young coach that they brought in and with Alexander Ovechkin now getting to the twilight as he approaches Wayne Gretzky and that insurmountable 894 goal scoring for career record, I guess they had to do it. I wouldn't have signed him to that long of a deal, but... God bless Wilson, and I'm sure he's counting every red cent to the bank, so good for him as the Capitals sign their in-house enforcer and tough guy. And now, do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the book. Some housekeeping, as always, as we conclude. Thank you, the listener. Thank you, the follower. Thank you for just being a part of this podcast, carving out precious time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. Trust me, that does not go unnoticed. I certainly recognize that. Obviously, I'm not with you to know who is tuning in on a week-in, week-out basis. But believe me, it is certainly just grateful to know that you do listen to me and that you become a part of this podcast. So thank you once again. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review. Throw me a few stars, write a review. Like I mentioned at the top, just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. Again, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And if you want to hit me up, Follow, subscribe, please do so at the following on YouTube, at J Reels, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels, one, just a number, and then the old-fashioned way, if you want to hit me up by DM or by email, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com, whatever you want to send, 
question, comment, suggestion, please do so. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals because whether you do or do not know. This is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. As I like to say, talking sports is something that I've done since I've come out of the womb. And I will continue to do so as long as I'm alive and breathing. Please check my YouTube channel as I put up content there daily. I'm trying to do more so on Instagram and TikTok as well. But YouTube has been the mainstay. So please go there, subscribe, flock there, tell your friends, the sports fans in your life. Because if you cannot feel the fire, passion, fury, and energy into this microphone through your earbuds, headphones, or speakers, then I have to do a little bit more. Or whether or not on social media, whether you follow me there and you see just the enthusiasm that I have on those platforms, well then I'm going to ratchet up even more. Because my thoughts, feelings, opinions, critiques, analysis, praise, on anything and everything that has to do with the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. When it comes from my lips to your ears, my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, especially when it comes to SBRTS, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to Southeast to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>